So we are working our way through the book of Ephesians, and we are in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's our second week dealing with this very famous passage of Scripture, one of the clearest, most compelling presentations of the gospel that describes the bad news and then the good news, and it leaves us at a place of, of making a decision of what we're going to do with that. And so once again, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, please stand. We'll read the word out loud together. This is our custom. Uh, the words are going to be on the screen. Please read with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with, with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Thank you. Please be seated. Lord, as we gather this morning, I pray for your Holy Spirit to empower this message to bring truth and clarity and hope to all of us that we would see the beauty of what you have done because of who you are that we would respond with faith and i praise in jesus name amen so last week if you remember i mean this really it sets out powerfully with the bad news of the human condition and then the good news of what god has done but just a bit of a recap if you remember in the first three verses paul says you were dead you were dead. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses. He talks about the fact that we were captive, captive to the spirit of the world, spirit of this age. We were captive to the evil one and captive and subject to the desires of the flesh, powerless over them. He says we were sons of disobedience and descendants of wrath. And this is just a natural state. He said, like everybody else, this is our natural condition doesn't mean that we're horrible people, that we all do horrible things, but it does mean that we are hopelessly infected by the fall and powerless to save ourselves. This is what we call the doctrine of total depravity. New Testament scholar John Stott writes, the biblical doctrine of total depravity means neither that all humans are equally depraved nor that nobody's capable of good, but rather that no part of any human person, mind, emotions, conscience, will, etc., has remained untainted by the fall. Outside of Christ, man is dead because of trespasses and sins, enslaved by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and condemned under the wrath of God. This is, this is everybody. This is the natural state of human beings due to the fall. And this dark context <coughs> sets 
sets apart in contrast the beautiful work of God and what he's done on our behalf. We didn't really even get to that last week. We kind of were left in this place of, of dealing with the natural state of, of our fallen dead souls. But now we're going to see what God has done. And I'm, I'm just going to address this under three subheadings, what God did, why God did it, and what we must do. Okay, so first, what God did. So following these three verses, three of the most depressing verses in all of Scripture, Paul begins verse 4 with, but God. But God. And this is the way our testimonies look. Most of us, many of us, we have a story to tell. There was my life before I met Christ. And there was darkness, there was sadness, there was so much anger, there was so much unforgiveness, there was addiction, there were so many things. And I know where I was going and who I was but God. And there's an intervention in some miraculous way, whether it be in a church service or a retreat or in your room alone. Someday you're reading Bible. So many people come to the Lord just reading the old Gideon Bible that's in a hotel room. But God, and everything changed. You know, there's no substitute for the word God here. But Superman, not enough, right? But Gandalf, but the United States Supreme Court, but the president. There's not even but Patrick Mahomes. <laughs> There's not even one person whose name you could substitute but God. That's how desperate our situation was that only God could intervene for dead souls. Paul writes, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the most comprehensive, beautiful picture of what God did on our behalf of, of, of dead souls. There's really three things. Resurrection, ascension, and session. Session is just an old English term for being seated. These are the three things that God did for dead souls when we were powerless to save ourselves. Let me just look at all three. But before I do, let me just ask you a question. Does any of this sound familiar? That's exactly what God did in Christ, right? He raised Jesus from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God where he sits with God in all judgment, power, and authority. In fact, we actually say these three things every time we say the creed, right? The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. This is what Paul just did. He said, what God did for Christ, he now does through Christ for dead souls. Resurrection, ascension, and session. Seated at the right hand, seated to, next to Christ, with Christ. So let me just unpack each one for just a minute. First, God made us alive together with Christ. Alexander McLaren writes, The great gift which Christ brings to men is new life. The low popular notion that salvation means mainly and primarily immunity from the ultimate, most lasting future consequences of transgression, a change of place or of condition, infects us all and is far too dominant in our popular notions of Christianity and of salvation. Listen, salvation is something done in you. It is not something that you get but it is something that you become. The very essence of salvation is the breathing into me of a divine life so that I become a partaker of the divine nature. That is a beautiful expression of what salvation ultimately is, first and foremost, 
It's something that you become. It's, it's new life in you. You know, Jesus used this illustration in John 15. He was talking to his disciples. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And of course, he refers to God as the gardener who prunes the vine, but any branches that are dead are just cast off and thrown into the fire. Now, now this is the picture that Paul just painted. You were dead. You were like a dead branch. I don't know how many of you have fruit trees in your yard, but I have a whole bunch of them. And if a branch dies, it's absolutely dead, useless. You can just take your hand and just pop it right off. There's no life in it. And there's no point in that branch remaining. In fact, it actually diseases the rest of the tree. You have to cut them off and you just throw them in the fire. This is the picture of our natural state. We are separated from God by sin. We have no life of God in us. Our souls dry up, become brittle, and they are dead. There's no life running through them. And here's the miracle of what God did in Christ is he took something that was dead and he makes life course through it. That the sap of Christ actually pours up through the branch that was dead and now there is bud and there is flower and there is fruit. It's a miracle that a dead thing can have life. And as long as we are attached to the vine, we will be those that continue to bear fruit. This is just a beautiful picture of what our salvation is. Now, in addition to being made alive together with Christ, Paul writes that God raised us up with him. This is the the visual of resurrection, but it's even more than that. It's like the ascension of Christ. Uh, It's hard for us to understand this because we all know, you know, we believe as Christians that we're going to raise with Christ, like, I mean, we're going to be raised from the dead, right? We're going to go to heaven. But Paul talks about this like it's already happened. Like when you first believed, when you became a believer, not only were you made alive in Christ, but he raised you up. And I believe this is the language of liberation. Remember our situation. We were pressed down. We, we were held captive. We were bound by the shackles of this world, of Satan himself, and of the desires of the flesh. And when Christ saves us, He raises us up above that. He raises us that we're no longer under the spirit of this age, but over. No longer under the captivity of Satan himself, but over. No longer under the desires of the flesh, but we can now have mastery of these things. It is the language of liberty. This is very much, you know, what Jesus said in John 8, 34 and 35. He said, truly I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son has set you free, you're free indeed. He has raised you up. You are no longer a citizen of the world. Your citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And as a a citizen of the kingdom, you are free. You're free indeed. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. I so need some amens. I sure hope you're not growing tired of the gospel. I sure hope that you'll hear the gospel like maybe for the first time like you've never heard it before because this is the best news that there ever has been spoken in all of history. Not only did he raise us, Paul says, but he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. (laughs) I know you're like, what? Sounds good, but I have no idea what that means. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You know, when we just look at Christ, 
when he resurrected from the dead, he conquered death. When he ascended to heaven, he rose above the earth and, and, and entered into his kingship over all of heaven and earth where he sits at the right hand of the Father. So this picture of us rising with Christ and being seated with him is the language of sharing in what has happened with Christ, that we share his authority. We share his presence. And so if you, if you go back to Ephesians 1, Paul has said, he has given us, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the first thing we have to do is quit thinking about the heavenly places as like out there in outer space. The heavenly places are just the unseen spiritual realm. And what he's saying is that when you were saved, he made you alive, he raised you up and seated you with Christ in the heavenly places, in a place that is recognizable by all the unseen spiritual realities that are out there. And you share in his authority, you share in his company, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here's how you might can think about that. Wherever you are, in whatever meeting you're attending, whatever you're, wherever you're driving, wherever you are at any time, if Christ is in you and he's made you alive, he's just seated right next to you. Now you think about the blessings of being seated next to that guy, right? You have the blessing of his company. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you are never alone. He is always by your side. You have the blessing of his revelation. He is speaking and you are hearing. You have the blessing of his friendship because no one sits at table with Christ who he does not consider his friend. You have the blessing of sharing his cup. He said, you are going to experience a lot of the same things I did. You're going to follow me. You're going to, you're going to live the life as I've lived it. You'll experience some opposition, some persecution, but you'll all experience the very presence of God. We're going to share in the blessing of his community. We don't sit by Christ alone. We're surrounded by this great chorus of witnesses, the church. We're part of a family. Imagine that you are, your family table is with Christ. What a joyous meal that's going to be, right? You have the blessing of his perspective. If you're sitting next to Christ, you get to see the world the way that he sees the world. You get to see your life the way he sees your life. You get to see everything that's happening through his eyes because he's right next to you, helping you to see things the way that he sees that. I can go on and on and on. I mean, I actually think you get the blessing of his laughter. <laughs> How many of you know that God created humor? God created us to laugh. And I think Jesus has a big, huge, hearty laugh. And most of the time he's laughing with us, but I'm pretty sure sometimes he's just laughing at me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I make him laugh all the time. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> right? But we're with him. We're seated with him. We get his joy. I mean, just take some time this week and think about what it means as a Christian that Christ is seated right next to you wherever you are. Never forget that, church. What a blessing. All right, so this picture of being resurrected, raised up, seated with Christ, I know it feels ethereal. I know you're still struggling in your life with your cancer treatment and with your relationships and you're trying to figure out how all of this works. But come back to the text and remember what God has done on our behalf when we were dead and could not possibly save ourselves. The clarion finishes with such a beautiful picture of our salvation. He says, if you will take him for your Lord... You will rise from the death of guilt, condemnation, selfishness, and sin into a new life. 
a life of liberty, sonship, consecration, and righteousness, and will never see death. That's what Jesus said in John 11. Those who live and believe in me, though they die, yet they will live, I tell you, he who believes in me will never die. Life to life. He goes on, if we will put our trust in him, his life will pass into our deadness. His life will pass into our deadness. He himself will vitalize our being. Dormant capacities will be quickened and brought into blessed activity. A new direction will be given to the old faculties, desires, aspirations, and emotions of our nature. The will will tower into new power because it obeys. The heart will throb with a better life because it has grasped a love that cannot change and will never die. And the thinking power will be brought into living personal contact with the personal capital T, truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. So whatsoever darknesses and problems may still be left, at the center there will be light and satisfaction and peace. You will live if you trust Christ and let him be your life. That's just a beautiful picture of our salvation. Can we say amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you. (laughs) All right, let me turn now to my second subheading, why God did it. If you read this passage again slowly, you'll see that Paul is very concerned that we understand why God did it. Why did God save us? Listen once again as I read these verses, but this time listen for God's character. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Four character traits that Paul articulates as the motivating factor of why he saved us. Mercy, love, grace, and kindness. Let me just unpack. I know it seems like a lot. It's not. But first, Paul helps us understand that God saves us because God's nature is merciful. It is God's nature to save. He's a God of infinite mercy. Now, what is mercy? Mercy is showing kindness to the downtrodden or those deemed to be undeserving. For example, if you decide today to break into my garage and steal my fishing boat, and then you wreck it, I have the option to either prosecute you or allow you to go free. If I allow you to free, I am showing you mercy because what you deserve is death. (laughs) God has every reason, every reason to simply turn away from his rebellious, hateful (laughs) creation, covered up in sin and hostility towards him. You feel that hostility every day in our world. Imagine what that would be like to be a father and to have all of your kids just hate you when all you've done is shower them blessings and love them. God has every reason to sentence his rebellious creation to eternal punishment because God is just. He's not going to compromise when it comes to punishing evil. And yet God is rich in mercy. And here's the tension of his character. And we see this all throughout the scripture. Psalm 145, we read, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. McLaren says, God's mercy is wider than all humanity. 
deeper than all sin, was before all rebellion and will last forever. It is open for every soul of man to receive it, if you will. That's how deep the mercy of God is. Paul echoes the psalmist as he reveals the source of God's mercy. The source of God's mercy is because of the great love with which he loved us. You know, the apostle John writes in 1 John 4, 16, God is love. God's nature is love. God is the genesis of love. God is the ultimate source and expression of love. Do you know that God loves you? Some of us doubt it. We've been through hard times. We've, we've, we've endured some terrible suffering. People experience horrific loss. We look at people groups who have experienced terrific suffering wondering, where's God? How can we know that God loves us? This leads me to my life verse, my favorite verse, Romans 5, 8. And we know God's love. He showed it to us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God's mercy and love is best and perfectly demonstrated in the world, to the world, through his son. Some people will say, well, you know, God didn't even love us until Jesus died for us. No, that's not what the Bible says. It's because God loved us that he sent Jesus to die in our place. Christ died because God loves. Now, some of you are asking a reasonable question. If God is rich in mercy and has such deep love for us and for his son, why did anyone have to die? Could not God simply have forgiven sin and yet spared the agonizing death of Jesus? We ask this question honestly, but we ask so with a degree of arrogance where we sit there and fold our arms and say, (laughs) you know, I don't know if God exists or not, but if he does, I'm pretty sure that's not a true story. And what you're saying is you could be better at God than God is. You could come up with a better narrative. But if you do, you will mock God's character. And I would just caution you. Think about it. God is indeed both merciful and loving, and he is purely just. Always at the same exact time. He never compromises in either of those characters, qualities, right? Paul writes in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Now go back and read the Old Testament. I know it feels tedious to you. Read all of God's law. But one thing you cannot escape is God's law is real. It resonates with our hearts. It teaches us right from wrong, but it also teaches us to break God's law is punishable by death. That's just how justice works. It's a, it's a big deal. The Bible helps us understand God will not turn a blind eye to evil, not their evil and not your evil. Every bit of evil deserves to be punished. That's the kind of judge you want. You don't want a judge who is arbitrary about evil. Sometimes he punishes it, sometimes he doesn't. Depends on whether he likes you or not. You want to judge who is just who will take evil very seriously and God does every single sin every evil deed will be punished either you're going to bear that punishment or Christ is going to bear it in your place and this is why when we look at the character of God the ultimate intersection of God's justice and God's mercy is a cross There we see the perfect expression of God's mercy and God's justice in Jesus Christ on the cross. The perfect love of God, the perfect justice of God. And this is what God did. He so loved you, he so loved me, 
his enemies, those dead in sins and trespasses, that he sent his son to die in our place, to atone for our sin, that we might be reconciled to God. Ultimately, God saved us because it's God's character to save, but his mercy and love came at great cost to God himself. And I don't want you to bypass this. You're so familiar with this narrative that you forget God is a personal God. There's no greater love shared between God than between God and his son. That's perfect love, unblemished love. So our salvation meant that the father gave up his son and watched him die. The lamb of God, who is perfect and unblemished, who didn't deserve any death, who had never done one thing wrong, never spoken an evil word, never had a bad intention, had a perfect relationship with his father, lived the perfect human life. The Bible is very quiet about how that affected the heart of the father. But it doesn't take much imagination of a loving parent and thinking about your own kid. That's, it's an unthinkable tragedy. But that's how much God loves us, that he would give us his only son. And Paul says, this is grace. By grace you have been saved. Grace is God's free and unmerited favor towards undeserving people. Grace is never earned. Paul makes it clear that our salvation had absolutely nothing to do with our behavior, our beliefs, our heritage, or our morality. God saved because God chose to save out of his nature, out of the riches of his mercy and love, irrespective of our love for him. Paul emphasizes again later in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Not one bit of your salvation is your own doing. Now, I know that seems redundant. I know I feel like you've heard this many times. Why do pastors keep saying this? Because you don't believe it. That's why we keep saying it. And here's how you know that you don't believe it. Because you continue to fret about what you've done and about what you've not done. You continue to worry constantly when you've had a bad week that you might not make it. Or you continue to have arrogance and pride of what such a better person you are than those people. Both betray that you don't actually believe the gospel. You actually think that you have something to do with your salvation as though somehow you're either going to merit or you're going to lose it. But church, hear the word of the Lord. You've been saved by grace. Sola gratia. By grace alone. That is really good news. If you ever actually believe that, it will keep you from being such a crazy person. Because you will rest in the unmerited grace and election of God who gave up his son and saved you when you did not deserve to be saved, when you could not possibly choose him, he chose you before the foundations of the world to be predestined as sons and daughters to be adopted into his family. This is the good news of the gospel. We've been saved by grace. Thanks be to God. Now, Paul writes finally of the last character trait, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, this is a loaded statement. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable. Now, remember, he was just talking about the immeasurable power of God towards us in Christ in his resurrection, his ascension, and the session of Christ. Now he's saying, in the coming ages... God might show the immeasurable riches of his 
grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. See what he's saying? There's no greater demonstration of God's power than raising Jesus from the dead, ascended and seated at right hand. But there's no better way to communicate his immeasurable riches of his grace than when the world sees God's kindness towards us, in us, in Christ. John Stott writes, in raising and exalting Christ, God demonstrated the immeasurable greatness of his power, but in raising and exalting us, he displayed also the immeasurable riches of his grace and will continue to do so throughout eternity. For as living evidences of his kindness, we shall point people away and beyond ourselves to him to whom we owe our salvation. How many of you know somebody who's like a real jerk, right? Like covered up in anger, resentment, just a, a very difficult person to be around. And, they, and there was a but God moment and they gave their life to Christ. And now they're like a completely different person. How many of you know somebody like that? How many of you are somebody like that? <laughs> right? I mean, this really is the testimony of Christian conversion. I may not be who I should be, but I'm not who I was. I'm a changed person, literally a changed identity. McLaren says it best. Salvation is a change in a man's nature so deep, radical and vital, as that it may fairly be paralleled with a resurrection from the dead. The redeemed characters of Christian people are in every age the clearest and most effectual witnesses of the power of the gospel. Church, that's you and that's me. The world in all the ages to come will know the immeasurable riches of God's grace and his kindness towards us when they see Christ in us. This is what it means to be the light of Christ. Now, finally, what must we do? What must we do to be made alive in Christ? Paul writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So clearly the source of our salvation is God's unmerited grace in Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection and ascension. This is how we are saved. This is the saving work of God. It's saved by grace. Nevertheless, the channel by which God pours out his grace into a soul, that channel is faith. And what is faith? Faith is nothing more and nothing less than trust. It is to trust yourself to God and to what God has accomplished in Christ for your salvation. Again, McLaren writes, trust, that is the condition. The salvation rises from the heart of God. You cannot touch the stream at its source, but you can tap it away down its flow. Put a yard of wooden pipe into the river and your house will have all the water it needs. When salvation comes into my heart by faith, it is not my faith, but God's grace that puts salvation there. Faith is the only condition, but it is the indispensable condition. How many ways are there of getting possession of a gift? One, only I should suppose, and that is to put out a hand and take it. If salvation is by grace, it must be through faith. If you will not accept, you cannot have. That is the plain meaning of what theologians call justification by faith. That pardon is given on condition of taking it. If you do not take it, you cannot have it. And so this is the upshot of the whole trust and you have. You must trust. You must place your faith in what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. Now, there's some confusion here because 
many of us think, well, I mean, I can't do that. He says right here that faith is a gift. I mean, I can't even, hold on one second. Faith really in the end is an exercise of your will. You either trust something or you don't. And if you trust something, then you act upon that. It is, a, it is an exercise of your will. Now, I, many of us interpret this passage wrongly, and it's very understandable. When Paul says, and, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, he's actually not referring to faith. And, and you can tell that if you read the Greek. Uh, the, the word faith in the Greek is in the feminine tense, uh, feminine voice, if you will. But the word this is in the neuter. If he was saying this in reference to faith, it would be a feminine uh, word, this. That's how the Greek language works. So when he says this, uh, he's just referring to the whole arrangement. The whole arrangement. All your salvation by grace is by grace alone. It is a gift from God so that nobody can boast. It's not by works. That's the whole point of what he's saying. Now, some of you are truly reformed people and you're writing me an email in your mind. Stop. Uh, it is not wrong for us to credit God for the gift of faith, because I think we can agree that a dead soul cannot have faith, right? And really, at the end, I mean, we have to place not just our confidence in the flesh, but our confidence in the spirit in God. This is what the reformers called unction, that, that the Holy Spirit gives us just enough life with conviction of our sin and our situation that we can place our faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's fine to credit God with the gift of faith. That said, you still have to exercise that faith. It is part of the image of God in you that you have a will and that you can trust something or someone. Now, here, here's the, the end thing here, is that it's not a matter of whether you will have faith or not. We all have faith in something. We're all going to trust something. We're going to trust an answer to the question, right? We're going to trust our worldview. We're going to trust our skepticism. We're going to trust any source in regards to our moral dilemma, in regards to how we fix what's broken, in regards to what happens when we die. We're all trusting something. That, the matter of having faith is not the question. The question is, have you placed your faith in someone or something that can save you from sin, death, and the wrath of God? Have you placed your faith in someone or something that can save you from sin, death, and the wrath of God? According to a biblical worldview, we all have a sin problem. Death is our condition and will forever be our condition. And what's worse is the very wrath of God, getting what we deserve. Now, if you don't think that you need saving, well, there's very little that I can do for you today. But all the great thinkers have always said, know thyself and you will know that you need saving, right? Doesn't take a long look in the mirror, a long reflection upon our lives, if all of our lives and our thoughts were played out on that screen, there's not one of us that wouldn't want to dig a hole and hide as far deep into the dark as we possibly could. That's just because that's our condition. So do you trust someone or something who can save you? So I'm going to finish with the most ridiculous illustration. Imagine that you were stranded on a desert island with no food and very little water. Not the pretty kind, like a really harsh little desert island. But it's yours, you're all alone, you have sovereignty over your little island, but you're about dead. When suddenly a helicopter lands and the paramedics rush out and they minister to your needs and they say, oh, we need to get you on that helicopter and get you out of here or you're going to die. Now you're very grateful for people who minister to your needs and you're already thinking in your mind like, I feel better, I think I could last a few more days. 
And you're really hesitant to get on that helicopter. Why? Well, because you like your little island. It's yours. And you don't really trust helicopters. You've never been on a helicopter. So here are your options. You either trust the helicopter so that you might be lifted away to life, or you refuse to trust the helicopter and you die alone in complete isolation. It's a nonsensical scenario, I know, but I want you to think about this. Salvation for the stranded person on the island requires trust in the vehicle that has come for his rescue. If the dying man climbs onto the helicopter, he is no more responsible for his rescue than if he had not. Right? He's, he's not responsible for his rescue. There's no merit in agreeing to be rescued. Just a bit of common sense. However, should the dying man refuse to board the helicopter, he most certainly is responsible for his own death because he declined the rescue that he so desperately needed. This is very much the plight of the human condition. Left alone where we are, we are most certainly doomed. We are spiritually dead, we are slaves, and we'll soon be subject to the wrath of God that we absolutely deserve for all the evil that we've done with our lives. This morning I've shown you that the helicopter has landed. Christ has come for us with healing and freedom in his nail-pierced hands. He has come to take our place, to take on our sickness, our death, and our punishment, that we might be lifted, lifted away to, with his life in us. And all we need to do is trust him enough to get on board. We simply need enough faith to allow ourselves to be rescued. Our faith won't rescue us. Jesus will rescue us. But our lack of faith, our unwillingness to trust him, will most certainly condemn us because we declined the rescue that we so desperately needed. That addiction, you'll never beat it by yourself. Those lies and all the deception you've spun, it will not end well. Your unforgiveness, your hatred, and all that resentment just doesn't go away by itself. We are all in need of saving, and not one of us can save ourselves. And Christ has come. God has intervened. And all that remains for you, initially now, is just this very simple thing, to, to, to place your trust in the saving work of Christ. What say you? Will you trust or will you choose to dwell on your little island and perish alone? This is always what the gospel leaves us with. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we consider, again, this powerful proclamation of the gospel, we are, we're forced to deal with the human condition and what we're going to do about it. And we just thank you for these two words, but God, that you did this. That you foresaw before the foundation of the world that we would need saving. That you chose us before the foundation of the world. You predestined us for adoption as your sons and daughters through Christ, through your own son who suffered in our place to atone for our sins that you might remain perfectly just and perfectly merciful. But you've entrusted us with your image and the power of choice to have a will, to trust something or someone. And so, Lord, on behalf of even one soul here today who has never trusted you, 
I just implore that soul, and I, I pray on his or her behalf, Lord, <laughs> I can't save myself. I can't fix this. I understand. I need saving, and I thank you for what you did, for sending Jesus in my place. And I pray that you would apply his blood and his sacrifice and his atoning work to my account, that I might be forgiven and reconciled to you and be part of your family, that I might be raised up with new life and seated with Christ and his company. I might become a new person, that, that life would flow through this old dead branch and bear fruit that blesses the world and brings glory to you. And Lord, for those of us who are your church, we just come to you with thanksgiving in our hearts. We're so grateful for what you did. And I pray that we will be faithful witnesses in our character and in our testimony to your loving kindness and the riches of your mercy so that all the world will see what you did and be drawn to you and be saved. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus and all the church said, amen, amen.